extant. If you're a visitor with us and you got one of these gizmos, a bulletin, inside there should be an outline and you can follow along with the message there or there are also uh, yellow covered sermon booklets that have the entire uh, manuscript on them and you can pick those up either now or later and uh, refer to them. They have a lot of extra verses and things in them. And um, all of those for the last 25 years or so are on the church website as well, along with the audio messages, so you can avail yourself of those. Uh, we come to a text in Second Thessalonians chapter 6 that I'm not preaching because I'm aware there's a need uh, of what I'm going to be talking about in our body. Uh, I, it's just one of those texts you come to, and uh, hopefully it is preventative medicine in case we ever have a need, which I hope we don't, but um, uh, it's one of those portions of God's Word inspired for our uh, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so as we work our way through this letter, we come to verses 6 through 15 of chapter 3, and then Lord willing, next week we'll finish off Second Thessalonians. Paul writes this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I'm going to date myself by my opening comment, but uh, way back in the late 50s, early 60s, there was a TV show called Dobie Gillis. Maybe if you're into old TV shows, you've seen it. The rest of us who were living then uh, nod and go, yeah, yeah, I remember that show. And, And Dobie was a young man who had a buddy. His best buddy was a beatnik. This is pre hippie Okay, the beatniks were kind of the precursors for the the hippies, and he he had a goatee, which was pretty radical back then, and he always wore sweatshirts and and tennis shoes, 
and um, his name was Maynard G. Krebs. And Dobie worked for his dad's grocery store, and every once in a while, Dobie would accidentally say the word work. You know, I got to go to work. And whenever he said the word, it set Maynard off, and he would go, work! And, And it was like it was an infectious disease he wanted to avoid at all costs, because Maynard was opposed to work. Well, apparently the church in Thessalonica had some Maynard G. Krebs types in the fellowship there who refused to work. They were sponging off of others uh, who were working. And as you can imagine, that created tension in the church. Um, Some translations describe these non-working folks. I think the ESV and the NIV as idle But um, most scholars agree the word is better translated unruly or disorderly. Literally, it meant to be out of step, like a soldier marching in ranks who's out of step with the other soldiers. Um, They seem to have had a defiant attitude because they were deliberately disregarding the commands about working that the Apostle Paul had given both when he was with them and then he repeated it in his first letter and now he repeats it again. Uh, They may have also been ignoring other apostolic commands. In verse 6, when Paul says, not according to the tradition you receive from us, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, that word means the commandments handed down by the apostles that they got from the Lord. And so the traditions are not uh, going through rituals. The traditions mean these guys were disobeying what the apostles had commanded under the Lord. Now, in our text, Paul's main concern is these brothers, these unruly brothers, they're not working but acting like busybodies. And a lot of um, commentators translate his wordplay there. It, it is a wordplay. Um, they're, they're not busy, but they are busy buddies, is the way it gets um, translated by some. And so Paul here commands them to work to support themselves. Now you have to ask the question, well, why weren't they working? Um, it may be they were like Maynard G. Krebs. They were just plain lazy and averse to work. Uh, but Paul doesn't say that. Uh, others think that they were evangelists like the Apostle Paul, but unlike Paul, they were demanding support from the church. I don't think that's a very likely view. Um, most commentators, and I would probably lean this way, think that uh, these uh, non-working brothers probably went way overboard with Paul's teaching about the coming of the Lord. And they said, well, if the Lord is coming soon, why waste your time working? You know, after all, we've got work to do for the Lord, so let's kick back. But, of course, that meant everybody who works has to support them. And, again, that creates some tension in the church. And then with all the extra time, if you don't work, you got time on your hands, right? So they are making the rounds, and they're spreading gossip and and maybe even false teaching, and so Paul calls them busybodies. Uh, Paul is concerned with two things. One is the tension that's creating in the fellowship, and second is the witness 
to the, the world. Because if the world thinks that Christians are a bunch of no-good loafers who are just, you know, averse to work, sponging off everybody, they get the idea they're religious hucksters. And we have those kind of guys in our day. And so the world says, who needs that? And the gospel then becomes um, uh, distant from them. So Paul is saying three things here to help an unruly uh, believer. First of all, lovingly exhort him to work. Lovingly exhort him to work. Secondly, don't enable his irresponsible lifestyle. And then thirdly, exercise church discipline if he does not respond to correction. Now I'm going to be using the male pronoun he throughout because saying he or she is too hard. But, uh, you know, it applies both to men or to women, I suppose, who are uh, irresponsible in this way. Um, we, we have to say the problem was incipient when Paul first visited Thessalonica and began teaching because in verse 10 he mentions that when he was with them the first time, he gave them this order, if somebody isn't going to work, then don't let him eat. So he recognized the problem then. Then in his first letter, um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, he wrote, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, that's talking to the busybodies, and attend to your own business, and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you'll behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So the problem was there when he was there, and then when he wrote back, He thought, yeah, I better touch on that. But now he devotes the longest section of this letter dealing with any moral issue to this problem that apparently has not gone away yet. And he emphasizes uh, his commandments. So he's not just suggesting this, he's commanding it. He says command in verse 6. He mentions order in verse 10 and then again In verse uh, uh, 12, he mentions, we command and exhort these people to work. So, uh, it was a problem. Let's look at the three things. First of all, Paul would say, to help an unruly believer, lovingly exhort him to work. And you'll notice that Paul repeatedly uses the word brother or brethren. It's in verse 6. It's again down in verse 13 and again in verse 15. And that underscores the fact that the church is the family of God. And our relationships in the church should be loving uh, family relationships. Love ought to motivate all ministry that we do. That's the reason we do anything we do for the Lord is out of love for the Lord and love for people. But we need to understand that biblical love does not mean always being nice. Biblical love means that you seek the highest good of the one loved and the highest good of anyone is that he or she be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And if you study the life of Christ... He wasn't always nice. You know, people get this weird view. Jesus was just all lovey-dovey. Man, what Bible are you reading? Um, 
You know, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you brood of vipers. You know, he, he was pretty strong and direct. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. You know, he says to Peter, um, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? He, he didn't always come across as a nice man. Why not? Well, because love isn't always nice. You don't want a nice doctor. You know, you go to the doctor with a problem, and he says, I love you, man, gives you a hug, sends you out the door, and he knows you got cancer. Well, that's not a loving doctor. You know, it's a nice doctor, yeah, but he's not loving. If he's loving, he's going to say, listen, I got some bad news, but I got some good news. You know, bad news is this is serious. Good news is if we get on it, we can cure it. And that's biblical love, to be certainly gentle, kind, gracious, all of that. But bottom line, if someone's in sin, it's going to lead their life into the gutter. You want to come alongside, put your arm around and say, hey, brother, I'm concerned. You know, you got a need here. And the good news is God has an answer. So that's biblical love. Now, we might think, well, what's the big deal about not working? Well, it is a very, very serious sin. Did you know that? It is serious. First Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa. I only know one other place where Paul says that sin is worse than that of unbelievers. That's in 1 Corinthians 5 when some guy is having uh, immoral relations with his stepmother. And, and Paul says, even the unbelievers don't do that. And that's the only other time I know of in the New Testament where uh, sin is is compared to or even worse than an unbeliever. And um, what Paul is saying is even most unbelievers get up and go to work provide for their family. So if we don't do that, uh, we are a bad witness to the unbelieving world. In Galatians 6.1, Paul gives this instruction, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness and looking to yourself, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Spiritual there refers to someone who is walking in the Spirit and displaying the fruit of the Spirit in his or her life. Um, The word restore has the idea, again, of bringing healing. It was used of putting a a bone that was out of joint back in the socket. And that's kind of painful, but it's the only way to heal, isn't it? Uh, Gentleness means you don't do it with harsh angry scolding or rebuke, you come along gently, and it has to be done in humility because we're all temptable. So you're not in your ivory tower saying, I have conquered all sin, and I've come to show you, you pagan, how to get over your sin. No, you're, you're coming as a fellow sinner, recognizing your own weakness, coming alongside to say, brother, uh, let me give you some help here on how you can get on the way of the Lord. Now, in order to do that, you have to set an example. 
of godliness because you can't say, don't do as I'm doing, do as I'm telling. No, you have to be able to say, do as I am doing. And Paul does that here. In verses 7 through 10, he mentions his own example. When he was there in Thessalonica, he worked to support himself. We read elsewhere that he made tents. And um, here he says, I, I didn't do this because I don't have a right to support. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul argues, I've got a right to be supported in my work as an apostle. But he explains, I set aside that right so as not to be a burden on anyone. And he didn't want to cloud the message. He's going into areas where the gospel has never gone. And it would have been easy for his critics to say, oh, yeah, the guy's just a religious huckster. He's trying to bilk you out of your money. And then he'll move on down the road. And Paul wanted to offset any of that sort of, of thing so that there would be no accusation, no blight on the gospel. First Timothy 5.17, Paul does tell churches to support elders or pastors who labor hard at preaching and teaching. The Apostle John in 3 John says that it's right to support evangelists and missionaries who go out for the sake of the name and proclaim the word of the Lord. Uh, so there's that um, New Testament right to support for Christian workers, but Paul is going the extra mile and saying, I'm setting aside that right so that I can be an example to these new converts. Now, when Paul says, I I didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it, don't take that to mean that if somebody invited him over for dinner, he got out his wallet and said, here, let me give you 10 for dinner. No, that's not what he means. Uh, I'm sure he accepted many dinner invitations and uh, was thankful for them. But he just means he wasn't sponging off of them. He wasn't um, expecting them, okay, put me up free, room and board. I'll eat you out of house and home while I'm there and move on. No, if he was there for any extended time, he paid for his expenses. Uh, And he wants to have that as an example of his integrity. So, bottom line, if you're aware of anyone, I'm not right now, thankfully, in the body here, but you're aware of someone who is sponging off of brothers and sisters, being irresponsible, maybe spending their money on unwise things. And I've noticed in the past when people are out of money and and I've gone over to try to see what the need is, they always seem to have a big screen TV on cable and uh, often they've got cigarettes and they've got beer and pampers for the babies. And those are all luxuries. You say pampers are a luxury? Yeah, we use cloth diapers. We raise three kids on cloth diapers. You can do that. It's really radical. You just wash them, you know. Uh, everybody today has got this level of thinking, I've got to have all this. No, you don't. Go travel in the third world sometime, and you'll see you can get by on a lot less than you think you can. But um, you need to go to a person, if you know of anyone, and just show him what the Word teaches and exhort him to look for work. Now, the question is, okay, what if he doesn't respond to my exhortation? That leads to the next thing. And that is, since work is a God-given responsibility... Don't enable an unruly believer to continue in his irresponsible ways. 
Again, I come back to verse 10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Now, he may need temporary assistance to get on his feet. That's okay. Uh, He may need some coaching on how to get a new job. That's legit. But then he needs to make it his full-time job to look for a job until he gets one. And not sit home watching TV or whatever. And Paul is saying this, if he's irresponsible, don't enable him to continue on in his irresponsible ways by giving food or money. And don't let him lay a guilt trip on you. They do that, you know. Oh, if you were a Christian and loved me, you'd help me out. I've heard that so many times. Um, If he refuses to get a job, Paul says there should be consequences. There should be consequences. And uh, that applies, by the way, even to family members. You know, you got a kid who's not working. He needs to pay the consequences of not working. And if you go on enabling him, you're not loving him. Three principles here to consider. First of all, work is a God-given responsibility for every able-bodied man. And I use the word able-bodied to include able-minded. If a person has issues mentally and they're not competent to work, that's understandable. If a person has physical issues, that's understandable. But every able-bodied man should work. Now, maybe you're thinking, man, what about women? Well, I'm going to get radical here and tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that men are responsible to support their families and that women are to be workers at home. You go, wow, that is countercultural. Yes, the Bible has a way of cutting across the culture, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now, married women certainly may help contribute to the family income. You see that in Proverbs 31. Um, But I believe if there are children in the home, and the couple is able to make it on the man's income, it really is important in rearing those children in the Lord for the mom to be at home with them. Later, she may work if that's her desire or if the family needs the income. Unmarried women, of course, need to work to support themselves. But here's where I'm coming from. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. And Christ provides for his church. And so we want the family, the home, to be a picture of that, of a father lovingly providing for his wife and children, and they are doing their part, certainly, but the man is responsible. Also, the Bible extols work as a God-given thing. Uh, In the garden, before the fall, God assigned Adam to work in the garden, and that was good. You say, yeah, but after, sin, after the fall, uh, he cursed work, didn't he? No, he cursed the ground. He never cursed work. He cursed the ground, and that made work more difficult, you know, with thorns and rocks and blight and all the other things that made raising a crop difficult. But even with slaves, and you can't find much more menial work than slaves, Paul said this, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather from, than for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now in Paul's day, manual labor was looked down on. The Greeks thought they were above that, and the Romans, you know, that's despised, that's for slaves. But the Bible consistently affirms the dignity of manual labor. It is significant that our Savior was a carpenter, isn't it? And that he chose fishermen as his disciples, and that Paul made tents. And so we are not to despise or avoid work. At the same time, there's a counterbalance, and that is we're not to be so consumed with work that our main aim is to become a huge success in our career and make a lot of money so that we can buy more and more stuff. And that's the American dream, I guess. Sometimes it's a nightmare. But, um, you know, Jesus in Matthew 6 said, don't seek all that stuff the Gentiles seek. They're, they're out there seeking all the stuff this world can offer. Jesus said, don't do that. And then he countered it, Matthew 6.33. We sang this song earlier. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so, yes, we should uh, work to provide. Also, we should work to have enough that we can give to the Lord's work around the world. But beyond that, we should be content and uh, not get caught up in the trap of more and more and more stuff. Uh, In his book, Life Work, Darrell Miller writes this. He says, when we see our worth as determined by the marketplace and the amount of money we make, we often sacrifice what matters the most, family, friends, marriages, Christian fellowship, in pursuit of success, prestige, fame, power, and all and other goals prized by the world. All too often, there is a direct relationship between our escalating material prosperity, and our increasing moral and spiritual poverty. And so on the one hand then, work is a God-given responsibility that, so that we can provide for ourselves and our families. And uh, that means work is good. At the same time, we don't want to fall off the other end and, and become so consumed with work that our goals are out of balance. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10 gave this warning, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then he explains, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. So that's the first principle, that work is a God-given responsibility for every able-bodied man. But secondly, underlying that is a character issue, and that is that self-discipline is an important character quality that every believer must develop. Uh, You'll notice in verse 7, Paul reminds them that he... And his fellow workers did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And then, by way of contrast, in verse 11, he confronts the unruly and he says, For we hear 
that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And so the contrast with being undisciplined is self-discipline or self-control, which happens to be a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that means every believer should be developing self-control. And these guys were not working, Paul says, because they were undisciplined. Have you ever thought about how self-control impacts just about every area of life? Almost every area. A self-controlled person uses his time wisely in line with biblical goals. So he's not wasting away his life doing all this worthless stuff. Um, If you're going to walk with the Lord, you need to spend time with the Lord alone in the Word and prayer every day. That stems from self-control. You have to make a priority to do it, discipline your time to carve it out, because other stuff will crowd in if you don't. Um, To get to work on time. And to be faithful in your job requires self-control. Again, uh, it affects your finances. If you spend impulsively on every piece of stuff that the world dangles in front of you, you'll go into debt quickly and and, uh, you'll just be in bad shape financially. Uh, Self-control enables you to pay your bills on time and be faithful in that area. Self-control affects all of your relationships. Because if you're lacking in self-control, you're going to say things you'll later regret. So you won't control your tongue. You'll probably lose your temper. And then, you know, cause damage in relationships. Um, Those who lack self-control, especially guys, often get involved in looking at pornography. And sometimes they're unfaithful in their marriages because of that sin. A lack of self-control is behind drug and alcohol abuse that ruins lives. Uh, Self-control affects your health. Because if you are self-controlled, you'll eat properly, you'll exercise properly. So it's just an enormously important quality that affects all of life. And I could, and in fact I have preached a whole sermon on it. If you want to read or listen to that, it was called Learning to Control Yourself. Uh, Back December 31st, 2006, you can get that on the church website. A third principle here, though, Paul is emphasizing is we are not responsible to help support an unruly brother who refuses to respond to correction. If he won't work, don't give him food or money. Let him go hungry. The book of Proverbs commends hard work and it... Uh, mocks fools who are lazy, who spend their money unwisely. Now, it's fine and just, it's okay to take a hungry man and, and buy a meal for him. I wouldn't give him money, but I've offered many times to buy a meal for someone who's hungry and sometimes have done that. Um, but helping him once with food isn't really going to help the underlying problem might get him through his immediate hunger, but there's a reason why he doesn't have money to buy food. And if you're going to work long-term with someone, you've got to peel away the surface thing and get down to, well, why is it that you don't have money? 
What's going on in your life that's causing this problem? Often, they're using money for alcohol or drugs, and you don't want to give them money for food if that's the case, because it'll go for alcohol or drugs. If he's not a Christian, the loving thing to do is confront him with his need for Christ. If he is a Christian, makes profession of faith, he needs to understand how to be filled with the Spirit, how to live in a self-disciplined, self-controlled way, to avoid temptation, all of those things, so that he can develop uh, self-control. Now, once in a while, people will cite Jesus' words in Matthew 5.42, where Jesus says, Give to him who asks you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And they'll say, well, you should just give indiscriminately to everyone. I think that is to misapply Jesus' command there. Um, I've seen people who will do that. They just give money to anybody and loan things to people who they know are not going to ever pay them back. I think you're sinning to do that. Because Jesus, in the context, was speaking against those who were so stingy, they never share. They aren't willing to help out others. That's one thing. First uh, John 3.17 speaks to that, where John rhetorically asks, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? <clears throat> but if Jesus and John meant you're to give indiscriminately to everyone and anyone then Paul is contradicting them here when he says, if he won't work, don't let him eat. Don't give him food. And I don't think they're in contradiction. I think they're speaking to different situations. Why you're sinning to help him with food when he's not working is you're furthering his irresponsible, sinful behavior. And that's never right. To help someone to sin, uh uh-uh. You don't want to go there. And if this guy is living an irresponsible, uncontrolled, uh, undisciplined life, you want to help him to become an obedient, responsible believer. And so Paul commands in verse 12 such persons, get a job. Get a job and quit being a busybody. That's what he means when he says, work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Now, the question still comes up. Well, What if a person refuses exhortation, repeated exhortations to get a job? And what if he continues to ask people in the church for money after he's been corrected? And the more touchy question, what if he's a family member? What do you do? Should you keep giving him more money? I think Paul says no. The third point here is that the church then is responsible to discipline an unruly believer who refuses to respond to correction. Paul mentions that first in verse 6, where he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the traditions which you receive from us. And then he elaborates on that in verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. 
So let's think about what does is, what is church discipline then look like? Well, <clears throat> first of all, as we've seen, the first step, those who are spiritual, walking with the Lord, should go to the one who is disobedient to the Lord and try to help restore him through admonishing him. And that isn't just a one-time thing. Sometimes it's repeated by one person or maybe several people in the church are, are doing that for some period of time. At some point, if he doesn't respond, then it seems that the elders need to get involved. And here Paul is giving commandments. And the elders do have authority in Christ to give the Lord's commandments and say, listen, as elders, we command you to get a job. And if the guy refuses, we need to warn him there will be consequences. Uh, The church is not going to support him. The church is not going to pay his bills. He's going to go hungry. He may end up being homeless. And we're going to tell everyone in the church, don't take him in. Now, a problem arises that Paul doesn't speak to here. What if he's married and has kids? See, here's the emotional factor. He's married and he's got kids. And oh, those sweet little kids don't have food on the table. And they don't have a roof over their head. They're living out of their car now. And, uh, boy, it can get manipulative. I, this, I'm speaking firsthand. For many, many years, my dear parents supported a deadbeat man who had five kids. And he would dangle the kids in front of my parents as pawns to get their sympathy. And they gave him literally thousands and thousands of dollars over the years. And I repeatedly told them, you're not helping. Don't do that. And it caused a good bit of family tension in our family. They always came back, oh, we don't want to see those kids go to foster care. And they wouldn't listen. Well, eventually, guess what? Somebody turned them into the Child Protective Service thing. This was in California. And the kids went to foster care. Um, That guy, the last time I saw him, he was at my dad's funeral. And uh, I think his, his uh, spigot got cut off at that point because we aren't giving him any money. But the point Paul is making is even if it's your family member, your dear brother, your child, whoever, if they are irresponsible, they're not responding to repeated attempts to get them to get a job, there need to be consequences. That's what he's saying. Now, if he doesn't, this lazy, no good brother here doesn't respond, then Paul says the church needs to be informed and the whole church needs to withdraw fellowship from the person contingent on his repentance and yet continue to admonish him. So I take this not to be the final stage of discipline that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18. There he says, you know, if your brother is in sin, excuse me, go to your brother. He refuses, take another one or two with you, talk to your brother. He refuses, tell it to the church and let him be to you an unbeliever. Uh, We're not at that stage because Paul says, don't cut off all contact. I take it what Paul means is don't continue to be buddy-buddy with him as if there's no problem. Don't invite him over to dinner and You know, maybe watch the Super Bowl with him and, hey, great game. See ya. Good to see you, 
brother? No, if you're with him, it needs to be for a specific purpose. Brother, you need to reform your life. You need to get a job. You need to be responsible before the Lord. And so that continued exhortation should be there. Um, and uh, we, we've got to be careful, too, not to be wrongly influenced by him uh, because a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Now, it's very difficult, I admit, to know how to apply verse 14 <clears throat> uh, where Paul says that you should do this so that he will be put to shame. Paul lived in a culture that was shame and honor-based. And we still have those cultures today in the Middle East where it is a big deal for the family to lose honor. That's why they have honor killings in some of the Muslim countries. Um, You know, if you lose honor, you shame your family. Whoa, that is serious. And in that day, these people had already lost honor by joining the church in their culture. The pagans would say, hey, what happened? You aren't with us anymore. And the fact that they weren't would meant they suffered shame for their uh, cause as Christians. And so now Paul is saying, if they sin, they're going to suffer double shame if you put them at arm's length in the fellowship. Um, I'm not sure how to apply it. As I said, one author I read, Carl Laney, in his book, A Guide to Church Discipline, he argues that the primary objective of the disciplinary action, if it was to shame the offender, he argues there's another Greek word that Paul could have used that would have been unambiguous. Uh, The word that Paul used here isn't that word, but rather it's a word that sometimes does mean to shame, but sometimes it simply means to turn um, or to direct. And so Dr. Laney argues that the purpose of the church's breaking off fellowship was get him to turn from his sin and then direct him in the way of the Lord. And that may be how we can apply that today. The goal is restoration, not final shame or embarrassment. But then if a guy continues in his unruly and disobedient ways, finally we would have to apply the last step of church discipline uh, where we tell the church, break off all fellowship with this guy except to try to witness to him. He is as an unbeliever. He may not be saved. Now, You can come tonight, Dr. Grudem is going to be talking about the doctrine of perseverance along with sanctification, Uh, but the question comes up, well, wait a minute, if he's in the church, then he's made a profession of faith. If he's made a profession of faith, isn't he saved forever? Well, we'll talk about that more tonight, but here's, in a nutshell, the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone not by our works. But the faith that saves is never alone. It always results in works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and don't forget to add verse 10. People memorize, you know, for by grace we're saved through faith, that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Read verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And the Bible is clear, if God has done a work in your heart, if he's changed your heart, your behavior is going to show it. 
And so if a guy shows no repentance when he's exhorted to repent, no change, there might be reason to wonder, uh, you need to go back to square one, brother. Did you really, truly trust Christ? Because saving faith necessarily involves repentance, doing a U-turn. Then Paul adds verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in in doing good. Why does he say that? Well, have you ever dealt with an unruly, lazy brother? It's very easy to grow weary. You just go, man, I give up. You know, I'm just going to say no to everybody that comes along with a need. Forget it. And I'm done. You know, I'm just spent with trying to help these people that have all these problems. And so you quit helping everyone. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't stop helping those with a legitimate need uh, because you're frustrated with those who refuse to obey the Lord. Another way it's easy to grow weary of doing good is just in exhorting a disobedient brother. At some point, again, you throw up your hands and say, man, I give up on that guy. You know, he's wasting my time. And if you've dealt with these kind of people, you know they are manipulative. They are deceptive. They play off your emotions. They get people in their camp and come at you to try to lobby you from different angles if they would work as hard at getting work as they do at being manipulative, they wouldn't have a need. But they don't do that, you know. They're masters at manipulation and being con artists and all of that stuff. And uh, Paul says, don't go grow weary of doing good. Well, as I said when we began, I hope I never have to apply these verses in this church. Uh, this is one of those texts you re- read it and go, well, it's there. Um, hope we never have to deal with it. If we do, I hope that we'll be faithful to the glory of our Lord for the good of the one that we are trying to uh, exhort and for the overall good of the church of Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're here this morning and you've never come to Christ, Even if this text doesn't fit you, you've got a huge, huge, huge need in your life. You may be successful in business. You may have a happy marriage. But if you haven't trusted Christ, you are under the wrath of God and going to face his judgment because we all have sinned. And the Bible is so clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news is God provided a way for sinners. And that is Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt, the penalty that we owe. And he offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who trust in Jesus. And that's the best news in the world. This morning you can walk out of here justified before God by putting your trust in Jesus. And that is the most important thing for you to consider. So I hope if you listen and forgot everything that I've said, you don't forget that, that you come to deal with God and your sin through the cross of Christ. Dear Father, pray you would take my words as inadequate as they are 
and apply them to every heart and life. Help us all as your children to become self-controlled believers who bring honor and glory to you in the way we use our time, the gifts you've given us, the, um, the money you entrust to us, that all of our lives would bring glory to Jesus and that we'll hear well done, good and faithful servant someday. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.